In the previous episode, it totally turned around the way she cares for herself. That's when she came to me and she said, I want a continuous glucose monitor. And she started, you know, going to the gym. She can totally control her type 1 diabetes with exercise and food choices. It's amazing what she's been able to accomplish. But I wouldn't have known about the postprandial testing if I hadn't taken your program. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Los Calzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. I'm super excited to present to you today answers to commonly asked questions that practitioners have about metabolic imbalances. If you're a health practitioner who really wants to help people to get well, not to just cover up symptoms, not to just apply protocols, whether nutritional or pharmaceutical, we are doing a live event that's just right for you. It's called Functional Nutrigenomics in Clinical Practice. And it's all about how you can learn the genetic testing you can do with people to help you to personalize their diet and lifestyle plans. And when you put that together with your typical really great functional history and lab testing, you're gonna have all you need. So join us for an online virtual event that you can attend from anywhere. It's June 2nd to 4th, 2023. And you can get there by going to nesliveconference.com. That's nesliveconference.com. And we'll also put the link on the show notes page. So here goes. Based on the criteria you discuss for metabolic wellness, many of my clients are part of the 88% that's metabolically unwell. How long can I expect to take to reverse that? Well, that's a loaded question. So there's so many factors that go in to how long it takes to reverse metabolic imbalance. And what I have found over the last 30 years of my clinical practice and in working with thousands of patients and hundreds or even thousands of practitioners and guiding them through working with these clients, I found that it depends on how dedicated the person is to doing what you ask them to do. So for example, you have somebody come in and they're maybe 20 pounds overweight, their belly to hip ratio is a little off, and their blood sugar is a little bit on the high side. You give them great advice about their diet, about their exercise, about their sleep, their stress, and they go off and they just do it all. Like they just follow your instructions to a T. You can shift this around within three to four weeks at the most. Sometimes I've seen it reverse in as little as two weeks, even in people who are diabetic, have already been diagnosed as diabetic if they're willing to follow the instructions. The problem is so many people have issues beyond those metabolic imbalances like mindset issues and 
hidden emotional traumas from their past or abuses and things like that, that make it really difficult for them to stay on the path. But honestly, if you can get them to do what you need them to do, you can reverse it in as little as a couple of weeks. I had one woman who was diabetic, 78 years old, had refused medication, just wanted to do it naturally. Blood sugar started out in the 180s, which is clearly metabolically unwell. She was maybe five to 10 pounds overweight, and she followed our instructions to a T. Within two weeks, her fasting blood sugar had dropped from about 160, 180-ish down in the 90s, and she was floored about how quickly it could turn around. Now, had she been 100 pounds overweight, I'll tell you about somebody else who was 66, I believe, at the time she came to work with us, and she had 110 extra pounds of weight on her body. That's a lot more than 10, right? But she was dedicated. She did what we asked her to do. She did the exercises. She did the the mindfulness practices. She changed her diet. She took supplements. And within four months, four months, she had dropped like 55 pounds. And her blood sugars had dropped from around 118 to in the 80s. So it can happen quickly. And it's really important for you as a practitioner to stress to people, not to stress them out, but to stress to them the importance of them following your instructions. Our next question is asked very, very frequently on my calls when I do with our practitioners who are studying in our insulin resistance practitioner training. And it's my client's hemoglobin A1C, last time it was checked, was 5.6. The doctor said it's fine. What do you think? Okay. Well, that depends on what your definition of fine is. I think fine is when people are in metabolic wellness. I think fine is when people are are out of the danger zone and in a zone where their blood sugar is maintaining stability on a consistent basis. So let's talk just a bit about A1C. Hemoglobin A1C is the measure of how much of your red blood cells are coated with sugar how much of those blood cells are, what percentage of those blood cells are coated with sugar. And so about 5.6, that's 5.6%. And that estimates to an average glucose over the last three months to about 117 to 119. And that's considered normal by conventional medicine, right? And conventional medicine thinks you're normal until your fasting blood sugar goes into the 120s. But honestly, if you look at 5.6, you're looking at a danger zone. You're looking at the fact that on average, their blood sugar is in the 117 to 119 range, which means that if you average whatever it was fasting with whatever it is during the day, it's coming out that high. I personally teach that we should not allow the blood sugar to go above 110. Occasionally, it might creep up to 115, 120, even after a meal. And that's what we target for to get people in that metabolic wellness phase. So is 5.6 good? No. What do I think is good? What I've seen to be really, truly healthy is around 5, 5.0. That means that their average glucose is in the 90s, which means that during the overnight fast, it's lower. During the day after meals, it's higher, but there's a tighter range. There's a lot more metabolic flexibility and a lot more 
metabolic balance. So 5.6, no, you're right at the cusp of when you're considered insulin resistant, pre-diabetic. So let's move to the next question. So I get this one a lot as well. If a client is doing intermittent fasting, do they really need to be eating a keto-like diet for it to be successful? Okay, this is a loaded question as well. And so many of the questions I get asked, I answer, well, it depends. So if they're doing a keto-like diet and intermittent fasting, their chances of dropping their insulin levels, their fasting and their postprandial after-meal insulin levels is a lot better. And when they're doing a keto-like diet, meaning lower carb, higher fat. It doesn't mean it has to be like pounds and pounds of meat every few hours. And it doesn't mean it's pounds and pounds of meat once or twice a day. What it means is that there's less carbohydrate. So there's less in the way of grains and sugar and all that. So if a client is doing intermittent fasting combined with keto-like diet, then they're at the highest uh, chance of getting their metabolic flexibility and their metabolic health restored. However, they don't have to be eating a super low carb diet like keto in order for intermittent fasting to have positive benefits. So if they are not eating a keto-like diet, but they're eating lots of sugar and they're eating Pepsi and they're eating it every you know six or eight hours and they're doing an 18 hour fast or 16 hour fast, they're still not likely to get pretty well pretty quickly because of all the junk in there. So there's balance. I find that some folks do fine if they do intermittent fasting and they don't eat the garbage food, the, the sugars and the f carbohydrates and all, but they don't have to be in ketosis. They don't have to have a measurement of ketosis. And I've seen people get well that way by doing their 16-hour fasts or, or 14 hours or 18 hours or whatever they find to be their ideal fast. So not necessary, but it can be more beneficial. But you have so many things to consider when considering whether a person should be eating a ketogenic-type diet. What's their gallbladder and liver health like? Are they able to digest all that fat? Are they very thin and they need higher carbohydrate level to keep on their energy? So there's lots to do there. Let's move on to question number four. How do I know the best eating and fasting window for my clients? I get this question from practitioners. I also get this question from my patients and the clients that we see in our programs. And it's like, how do I know the best eating fasting window? Some people do really, really well when they miss the morning meal, they skip the morning meal, and they continue to fast until they've gone their 16 hours or so, whenever they decide they're doing. And then they start eating and then they eat two meals a day or three meals a day in that window, one at the beginning of the window, one at the end, one in the middle. But it's not, that's not right for everybody. I had patients that did phenomenally when they ate a really good breakfast at, you know, say eight or nine o'clock in the morning. And then they had a larger, you know, good sized lunch, a hefty lunch, somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three in the afternoon. And then they skip dinner or they just had a little bit of salad at the end of their eating window and they've done phenomenally well. But if they tried to skip breakfast, then they were craving and starving all day. So there's a lot, uh, there's a lot there to unpack. And I would recommend that you experiment with people. So you say, okay, let's try 
an early feeding window. Let's try having you eat breakfast, eat lunch in the middle, if they're going to do it, or a small snack and eat dinner at the end and play with that. And then see comparatively, do that long enough, like, and then compare it to doing the later feeding window where you skip the breakfast, maybe eat starting at 11 or 12, depending on how early they got up and then eat then. And then again, and then again, two or three times and see how they feel, see how their weight does, watch their ketone levels, watch their blood sugar levels and decide. It does take sometimes a a couple of weeks, three weeks of experimentation. We have a program that we offer clients called Stay in the Sweet Spot, and it's a follow-on to our Sweet Spot program, which helps folks to get their sugars in balance. But then we go into the more sophisticated arena when we go into Stay in the Sweet Spot. And the first two lessons in Stay in the Sweet Spot is helping them to experiment to find their ideal fasting window. So let's move on to question number five. I get this so much. I've heard that for blood sugar balance and for optimal adrenal health, people should eat breakfast within an hour of waking up. In light of intermittent fasting research, is that really important? Is that really make sense? So that's been wisdom that's been passed down through the ages, if you will, that we need to eat within that hour of waking up uh, in order to keep the blood sugar stable. And what I have found is that that is really important for some people. Some people actually do really well. They eat a good breakfast when they first wake up and then it staves off the appetite. As long as it's not a high carb breakfast, usually we want that to be a really balanced breakfast. Like I teach in a book I wrote, called Hormone Hacking Breakfast Menus. And in there, I teach people the importance of the components of that first meal of the day. Whether that first meal of the day is within an hour of waking up, like some people thrive on, or whether it's later, like noon or later in the day. And we want to make sure that the components of that breakfast are set up so that we can keep the blood sugar and the insulin levels balanced and the ketone levels are optimal. And so what those components consist of are fiber, fat, protein, greens, something green, and then ideally, in addition, something with probiotics. And when people can do that kind of breakfast, that makes all the difference in the world. It makes it such that they can go later, right? If they start their day, okay. If they start their day with breakfast, they can still do intermittent fasting, like I mentioned, and the answer to the previous question. So some people do really, really well that way. What people don't do well with breakfast is when they do the typical, you know, bagels and cream cheese with a cup of coffee and orange juice breakfast way too high in carbs, which causes their leptin levels to peak too early in the day, and then they're starving after dinner. So I really believe that it's a variability. And as you work with clients more and more, you're going to see that you're going to need to customize the wisdom that you might have learned in class or on podcasts or wherever, that you have to balance that with the individuality. And when you can do that, you can get amazing results with people. Just keep in mind, there's no such thing as a protocol for anything. There's a program that works for the individual. And you have general guidelines, but then you have to tailor it to the individual. The next question I get all the time is, what is the best way to test blood sugar? So if you go to conventional medicine, you'll look at fasting blood sugar. That's what they use. Whatever that fasting blood sugar is determines whether they're 
normal, insulin resistant, or diabetic. And they're basically, their guidelines are not in the best way. Their, their ranges are not the best compared to optimal health. So when we look at testing, you could just rely on your doctor's measurement or their doctor's measurement first thing in the morning, but that's not the best way. So there's a number of ways you can do it. You can coach them to go to the drugstore and buy an inexpensive blood glucose meter where they have to prick their finger and they get a blood glucose meter reading and that reading is available right away. And that'll give you an idea of what their blood sugar is. And then they can test it whenever they choose and you can guide them as to what you think is the best timing of doing that. Yeah, they can do it first thing in the morning. They can do it after meals. They can do it 45 minutes after a meal to try to catch their peak. They can do it two hours after a meal. So you can guide them. And in our insulin resistance practitioner training, we teach how to actually teach them what the best way to do this is and give you some tracking charts and all that you can do. But the other way is you can have them get what's called a continuous glucose meter. And a continuous glucose meter is something that they can actually wear, um, usually on the arm. There's several different types. There's the Abbott Freestyle Libre, and you put it on the arm, and then using a device, you can either use your phone or a special device they have. Most people these days use their phone to actually take readings without having to poke the finger each time. There's a single poke when you insert the device in, and then you can get the reading at any time you want. And you can see graphs and you get all kinds of great information. When you have a continuous glucose meter, you can then determine how different foods and activities and sleep levels and stress affect their blood sugar. I think it's a great way to go. So there's the continuous glucose meter from Abbott, the Freestyle Libre. The other one that's available is called Dexcom. It's a lot more expensive and harder to get than the Freestyle Libre, but it's really advisable for people who are type one diabetics because it has alarms built in and parents can track their kids and get alarms when their kids start to go too high or too low. So that's the way to test the blood sugar. I believe that the best way is actually the way that they're going to do. So yes, a, a CGM, a continuous glucose meter is the best way, but not everybody can afford it. And number two, in the United States, those are by prescription only. So in Canada, in Mexico, all over Europe, even South America, you could just go into the pharmacy and buy a continuous blood glucose meter over the counter. No requirement for a prescription. In the US, it's harder to get, but more and more doctors, when they see the research and the clients present the research, are able to order those. If you happen to be a licensed healthcare practitioner and a medical doctor, a physician's assistant, a nurse practitioner, even in some, most states, chiropractors, naturopaths, you can write a prescription for your clients to get one of these glucose meters, which is an amazing way to test. And so another question I get, which just springs right from that is, do I have a favorite blood sugar testing device? So I about three, two or three years ago, I did a test and I bought like 10 different glucose testers, all the finger prick devices. And I laid them out and I had this extreme experiment where my fingers were being poked hundreds of times a day so that I could see 
how reliable these were. I could see how they went from, you know, one to another, but also how their inter-device, intra-device reliability was. So for example, if I tested using one device five times within a five minute or less period, and it was fairly consistent, close each time, then I knew that device had a good um, reliability. But if I tested it and it was all over the map, like a couple of them, I just threw in the trash. They were so bad that the readings were all over the map. And then the other thing is, how did they compare to each other? And what we thought was the most accurate, uh, the time, the, the actual blood sugar at the time. And what I did was I created a spreadsheet and a chart and I ranked them and I threw away the ones that were off the charts bad and I presented that and that's available in our sweet spot program and in our uh, insulin resistance practitioner training. But personally, I like the Freestyle Libre. I've never used the Dexcom, you know, just uh, saying that. So that might be even better, but that's way harder to get and way more expensive. But I like the Freestyle Libre. Some folks have a problem with its reliability that it doesn't seem to match when they do a finger prick test. I haven't had that problem. And I don't know if there's some specifics about their metabolism or the location or what, but some people do have an issue with that. But for most people, it's just a, a game changer when you can get them a continuous glucose meter. And there are, just so you know, there are a few companies where you can order these from and they will prescribe for you. So they have you do a little intake and then they send you a prescription that you can get the devices. Uh, one of them is called Levels, another one is called January.ai, and the third one I always have trouble remembering, but I see ads for it all the time on Facebook. So another question I get all the time is, so if I get my client to test their blood sugar, how important is it to test ketones? And so that's another it depends answer, right? If this person is showing really good reliability on their blood sugar, uh, you may not need to test ketones. If they're getting good results, they're dropping the extra pounds around the waist, their blood sugar's fasting or going down, their overall feeling better, their energy's improving, then you may not need to test ketones. But if they're having some issues, right? They seem to be following your plan, and yeah, they sometimes go off track, but they seem like they should be getting better results than you think, then I would test the ketones to see. They may be somebody who is slow to go into ketosis. So what I find when we do our blood sugar balancing program, our, our sweet spot blood sugar balancing program, is that some folks get results really fast, like within two weeks. And other folks, it takes longer, sometimes two months, before they actually start to see those dramatic shifts. And while I don't follow them around in their own home, so I don't know exactly what they're doing, I don't know exactly how they're sleeping or their stress levels, although they, they often claim that those are okay, I want to see, are they just a slow keto adapter? And I'll want to test the ketones to see if we can push that. And sometimes we have specific methodologies that we use to try to help them to get into ketosis more quickly to push the process faster. How often should ketones be tested? Well, unlike blood sugar, which I think at least initially should be checked every 15 minutes after each meal to see how high the sugar goes and at what point they get to their peak, I think with ketones, once a day, at most twice a day, is all you really need. 
What I find personally, because I test mine all the time, is if I run out of strips or I'm on vacation and I run out and I don't have the ability to get more, I just test my ketones just to see. And if I test my ketones and I'm maintaining in that 0.5 to 0.8 or even 1.0 range, I know that my blood sugars are probably fine because I wouldn't be able to stay in ketosis if it wasn't. So the more you learn about this and the more you understand the biochemistry and the physiology of how all this works, the easier it's going to be for you to guide your clients. So another question that I hear a lot is, how often should blood sugar be tested and how high can it safely go? So I already answered about that. how often. I recommend when you're first starting to work with somebody that you have them test their fasting first thing in the morning, and then you have them test right before their first meal if they wait after first thing in the morning to see where that is. And then you test every 15 minutes from the time they start eating the meal. Because what you wanna catch is how high does it go? How high is the peak? How long does it take to get to the peak? And then how low does it drop? And do they have any reactive hypoglycemia because it drops dramatically at three hours or four hours afterwards? And if you can do that, for a few days and track for them, you might be able to advise them to not have to test quite so often because when you learn that their peak is almost always at 45 minutes, then maybe you don't have to test in those first 45 minutes, right? You just test the at 45 minutes. So there's a lot of nuances to this, uh, but it really pays off when you understand this really well. Well, how high can it safely go? I'll give you a few statistics to see if you want to make your own decision. There are studies that show that once the fasting blood sugar goes above 120, we start to get damage to the peripheral nerves. So we know that one of the serious complications of diabetes and out of control blood sugar is peripheral neuropathy. And it's cumulative. It's not like they suddenly wake up and they have peripheral neuropathy because they're now diabetic and their blood sugar is above 120, 125 in the morning. So what we want to do is be able to keep it so that it doesn't really go above 120 because it's the cumulative damage to those peripheral nerves that causes a problem. The other thing that we've seen is that over 140, we see damage to the, the retina in the eyes. And we know that retinopathy is a serious complication of diabetes. And that can build up over time, long before people are diagnosed with diabetes. And then some of the studies actually showed that between 120 and 140, we see some damage to the retina. So my opinion is we should keep it below 110 all the time. They should... Maybe occasionally it pops up above 110, but if you keep it in that range of 110 or you ask them to target to keep it in 110, then they're not going to run the risk of damage to their peripheral nerves and also damage to their retinas. So that's where I recommend that we do it. Yeah, occasionally they may go a little higher than that. That's not going to be the problem. So how do they keep it within that range? Well, that's where you come in. That's where your education and teaching them and analyzing their 
their food intakes so that you can actually help them to keep it there. So you're watching them as they eat certain foods, as they get into stressful situations, as they do things to actually bring their sugar down and you guide them through what we call a metabolic reset. And we go into major detail about that in our insulin resistance practitioner training about how to guide somebody through that complete metabolic reset. So that's my recommendation there. And finally, a question that I get a lot regarding intermittent fasting is if intermittent fasting is very effective at lowering blood sugar, is it possible to get in a danger zone if somebody's intermittent fasting on a regular basis? When I say danger zone, I mean like a type one diabetic who's on insulin runs the risk of taking too much insulin and dropping their sugars too low and getting them into a danger zone where they can pass out. They could go into a coma and they can actually die. While I don't want to make this claim on a broad basis that is true for everybody. But what I find is that for the most part, in all the people I've worked with and in working with myself, when you get into that lower blood sugar range, when you're intermittent fasting and doing a keto-like diet, you're not going to run that risk because what's happening is the ketones are coming up to make a difference. So instead of having no fuel because the blood sugar is in the 40s or 30s, your body is going to rely or their bodies are going to rely on ketones. And I've had my blood sugars go as low as 33 and felt fine and went out for a run or a walk, right? So I don't say that's true for everybody. If you're, if they start to creep down too much and if they're on any medication, then absolutely it can go too low, right? Metformin or, or insulin. But if they're not on medication and they're doing this and they check their ketones and their ketones are going up, then there's really not that same danger. But again, you know, your results may vary and you make sure that they're checking in, especially if they are under the care of a medical practitioner or you are their medical practitioner. So that's it for our questions today about metabolic health. And what I want to let you know is we're here to answer your questions. So I would recommend if you have a question about metabolic health or the future episodes or past episodes of the podcast, please go to www.reinventhealthcare.com and click across the top. There's a, a tab, a navigation that says, ask a question. When you go to that page, you will have the ability to just ask your question and be, be recorded. And then we'll listen to your questions and put you on the podcast with your question. So I look forward to having you shine as a practitioner. And so what I would recommend is based on what we've talked about today here in these questions, go and find one thing that you can put into practice right away that'll help you be that shining practitioner that supports other people's health. And if you want to go deeper with fasting and intermittent fasting and all the ways that you can support people, I would go to reinventhealthcare.com forward slash fasting and download my free guide. Until next time, shine on. Thank you for listening to the Reinvent Healthcare podcast. Join the movement of practitioners that are guiding people to actually get well rather than covering up their symptoms. Connect with us at reinventhealthcare.com to access resources and tools that will empower you to create a thriving health practice.